0: Hello, I am Grayson Brulte, and welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today. Before this episode begins, please kindly take a moment to subscribe to this podcast, and you will be notified when a new episode is released. SAE Tomorrow Today is published every Thursday. On today's episode, I sat down with Malcolm Docherty, Senior Vice President and National Practice Executive with Michael Baker International, to discuss planning for a frictionless mobility future, how infrastructure enables multimodal transportation for all, and how airports and stadiums will be impacted by the electrification of vehicles. And away we go. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Malcolm. Grayson, it's great to be here. I'm super excited to have interesting conversations around engineering because growing up, you loved Legos and puzzles, and you're a problem solver. You have a long career solving problems. From the early days of Legos and puzzles, is that kind of where you've got this affinity to become a great problem solver?
1: Yeah, as a kid, I always was trying to solve different uh, puzzles and those types of things. But I think what led me into civil engineering particularly was was, uh, I was very uh, strong in math and had an affinity for math. So coming through high school and going into college, I knew engineering was going to be my field. And when I started looking at it, civil engineering and roads and bridges was tangible. I could see it. I could feel it. I could could see how I was going to invest in it. And that's probably what attracted me ultimately to uh, civil engineering and transportation and roads and bridges
0: when you're a child riding in your parents vehicle or you're looking at that bridge thinking okay I, if i did this i could do this a little bit better kind of thinking as a child with a great imagination
1: you know not necessarily if i think that far back <laughs> what i remember of my childhood was driving in the car and my mom quizzing me in math problems believe it or not
0: Oh, that's awesome. I have a six year old. And so we just attraction the car. I'm like, okay, so six minus four equals two. And, and that's like, okay, now we're at school. And so it makes the ride go by fast. Fast forwarding uh, from your childhood, you started your career over 30 years ago, in California, Caltrans, a lot has changed over the past 30 years, especially in mobility. What are some of the biggest changes in mobility that you've seen in your career? Well, if I think back to when I started my professional career about 30 years ago,
1: uh, that's about the time, believe it or not, that uh, we as a nation finished the interstate system. Of course, we started it way back in the 50s, but completed the last components of it. And, and about that time in the early 90s, you know, across the country, we were still building out some of the freeway system as well. That is much less common today. And today, there's a much more strategic approach to how we're handling transportation And mobility and access and demand. Um, And certainly the transportation system is dominated by the freeway system and the highway system, but the widening of that system and adding capacity is much more strategic. We're doing HOV lanes, we're doing toll lanes, we're allowing electric vehicles into managed lanes and those types of things. And we're also thinking about it much more as a network uh, than we were before. The importance of Uh, the transit system tying into the freeway system tying into active transportation and those types of things. So I think we're much more strategic in our thinking now and our investment is going into taking care of that system that we were expanding 30 years ago, as well as investing in other modes of transportation. There's also a lot of other trends as far as shared mobility and micromobility that are here today that were not here 30 years ago.
0: And looking at this, you had an incredible run at Caltrans and highly respected in that role. Put that out on for a second. How do you get all these modes of transportation to work together? So if an individual is trying to get to work or or go to a friend's house, that they can all work together seamlessly, is that something that, Michael Baker, you're working on to combine all these modes of transportation so it can work together seamlessly? Certainly. Uh, From the planning side,
1: it really brings into focus how to build a network that really connects people with their destinations, whether or not it's work- Recreation services that they need, medical services, etc. Uh, there's a varying um, portfolio in the transportation system. So that it starts with planning. It starts with land use because land use will drive your demand on the transportation system, and depending on what you plan for, will dictate what kind of uh, demand you uh, you have on it. So. And, and even go, and going forward, you need to be planning for 2040 and 2050, not just 2021, as far as the transportation system goes, because it takes a, a while to to build that out and realize um, the transportation network and what you've provided to the community uh, over the years.
0: What impact has COVID had on planning? So I agree with you, the 2040, 2050, because you're building this infrastructure to last a long time for individuals to get use out of it. But we're, we have COVID. Does that go into the planning? Or do, you, do you look at, you said, 2040 to 2050, but are you looking at, say, uh, 21 to 26 in a post-COVID world? Or are you kind of just try to accelerate that? Does that go into that planning process?
1: Well, there's there's a lot there you could really peel back the onion and talk about. There were certainly some trends in transportation pre-COVID-19 pandemic. There were things that we we're realizing now during the pandemic or coming out of the pandemic It'll be interesting to see what happens in the long run to some of those other transportation trends that we were experiencing, um, you know, telecommuting, t- uh, transit ridership, those types of things. How are they going to be affected? Uh, shared shared mobility and using transportation network companies, Uber and Lyft. How are those things going to be affected? As far as long tra- term transportation planning, I think this is going to be a pause, an introduction. Inter- interruption and maybe a pivot to those transportation trends, but looking out at 2040-2050, I think this may just be a deflection point in some areas, but it won't be a longer term trend as to what we're experiencing now. Now, DOTs and owner operators are certainly having to deal with ramifications of COVID-19 right now as far as the reduction in travel, therefore the reduction in farebox return or revenue to pay for the transportation system. What do their programs look like for the next couple of years? But that's probably a short-term planning concern right now. But I also think that there'll be things that we can learn from that may make us adjust those transportation um, plans for the long term.
0: I agree with adjusting. And I think it, the consumers get enough credit here that they're flexible when it comes to transportation. They've clearly demonstrated a willingness to try new forms of transportation. I think that's going to be something the pandemic has only accelerated. Well, if I go on an electric scooter, I'm not necessarily around another person. And we might see some really interesting acceleration trends that are going to happen there. And when you look at this whole thing, to me it comes budgets. And when you were the director of Caltrans, you managed a $10 billion budget with 20,000 employees. Today, if you were there managing in COVID, how would you manage it differently? Because you have this incredible and you've always had this throughout your career, this insight to see the future, but budgets are, are today, how are you managing the budget for today, knowing that where we're going to go in the future?
1: Well, one thing I will say is every every leader of a large organization has their individual challenges. You have your burden of running such a large organization of 20,000 employees, and then you'll have your unique challenges along the way. But I never had to manage a pandemic, so my hat's off to the leadership that's there now and the current administration in trying to figure out how to do that. But right now, what they're trying to figure out with their budgets is their revenue is impacted because a significant part of the revenue that pays for the transportation investment certainly on the highway side but it also helps fund other modes of transportation is the gas tax and the gas tax has taken a significant hit on the transit side farebox revenue has taken a significant hit we've all probably seen the impact to the airline industry from reduced uh, ridership there but what they're going to do is they're going to prioritize taking care of what they have now successfully operating what they have out there in the field currently. And then they're going to look at other investments beyond that. And capacity increasing the large projects may have to be delayed a little bit as they go forward. But what are the projects that give you the best benefit cost ratio? Operational improvements as opposed to expansion of freeways. Using technology to enhance the effectiveness and the efficiency of what you have now before you try to expand and add capacity to what you have Make the most of what you've already invested in. That's the most cost-effective way to go forward because the most expensive thing to do is to expand the transportation system. And when they prioritize with less funds, they'll probably prioritize in that order.
0: Hats off, you sound like a CEO of a publicly traded company because you you understand the, the value of a dollar and you clearly understand how economics work. While you weren't there during a pandemic and the leadership is currently having to manage for a pandemic, on September twenty third, Governor Newsom announced the phase out by twenty thirty five of gasoline power cars. What's going to happen to the gas tax? Where's that additional revenue going to come from to to support Caltrans? If the gas tax goes away, does an EV tax bubble up? Do we get into the the VMT tax? Kind of. It seems like there's another pandemic coming for this individual that's running it now to have to manage from an economic standpoint.
1: Yeah, so no doubt and that's a very uh, uh savvy question. Just one clarification on what governor Newsom has done in California. It's not necessarily a complete phase out by 2035. I think his executive order specifically says that all new cars by 2035 would be electric and there's also some room for other zero emission uh, type technologies that are in there. And it takes a while to transition the fleet to zero emission into electric cars. But if by 2035, all new cars are required to be electric and there'll be some exemptions to that in in certain areas. But uh, then it'll take you know 10 years, 12 years, 14 years to substantially turn over the fleet. So that's the one thing there. But if nothing else changed, you're, the average vehicle uh, out there today gets about 24, 25 miles to the gallon. If nothing else changed by 2035 and our fleet was then getting 50 miles to the gallon, you have reduced your gas tax revenue by 50%. And, and, and that's not a bad thing. There's a lot of good things to that from a reliance on petroleum products to uh, the environment and those types of things. So they're all good except if you're dependent on that gas tax sale for taking care of your transportation system. So you're going to have to work in some other method. One thing that California and several other states have explored was a vehicle miles traveled or a mileage based user fee uh, to charge individual vehicles by the mile that they travel. Um, And that it can be done. There's some technological challenges. There's some public acceptance challenges. There's some political challenges. But it is viable. It's not a tomorrow answer, but it may be a 10 year from now, 15 year from now, 20 year from now answer. And I think it'll probably start to be phased in. If you look at uh, electric vehicles today and in California, it's about 5% of the fleet, they're not paying a gas tax now and they're using the transportation system. And so those vehicles, it, it may be a consideration to start charging them by mile. In California, we're charging them a flat uh, fee per year uh, registration fee above and beyond uh, what the other vehicles are. And it's a it, it's a simplified user fee for them as a replacement for the gas tax. But that's one area that's being explored today and is viable uh, and may uh, be the replacement of the gas tax.
0: It's going to be an, an interesting debate because on one hand, you're going to have the, the one group says, I only want to pay for the miles I've driven. And on the other hand, you're going to have the privacy groups and to say that you're violating my privacy, you're tracking me. And so it's going to be a heated debate, but I think everybody can agree that there has to be some sort of solution to make up for the lost revenue. How we get there, not sure, but there has to be some sort of solution. When you're oper- when public transportation is operating uh, buses today, are you looking to the future of when these buses will be electric? Is there a planning going underway to kind of shifting the public buses to electric? Uh, No doubt that the public
1: agencies and transit agencies are thinking along those lines and they've got a couple of challenges to overcome as well as the private sector industry that is building buses and developing new technology for buses. Uh, And that is the range of those buses, the capacity of the batteries and storage of electricity, uh, the time that they can run, the number of passengers you can put on there because the extra weight that you put on there from the batteries. But that technology is going to continue to advance. And some of those things are gonna be overcome. I think what they have to be planning for is in that world in the short term and in that world in the long term, You know, what is the range of those buses and how do you lay out your routes to serve the most customers and still be able to meet it from your vehicle limitations? Uh, in addition to that, there's other things like the weight of those vehicles and uh, the wear and tear on the roads If uh, if the buses are that much heavier because they're carrying buses around as well as the charging infrastructure for those buses. And do you need additional charging stations besides just where they're stored overnight, uh, mid route? If they're making routes into a city from a suburb uh, and then they're uh, idling there or uh, pausing there and then doing the reverse commute in the evening, do you have charging stations where they'll be able to stage and then come back? So mid, mid route charging stations. And that's probably what they need to think about is that infrastructure there as well as the backbone of the, the electric grid.
0: That's an interesting, interesting point around charging stations right? for Jim is depot. So if they're going to go um, we'll use Los Angeles really well. So if they're going to run on the, say, Santa Monica to Mid-Wilshire run. That's a very common run. Then they may off of Mid-Wilshire. There's a depot. They get charged. They get cleaned in a post-COVID world. They get sanitized. I could totally see that happening. But when you're running these buses, and you mentioned energy grid, these buses are operating there, and they're going to charge, and it's going to take a lot of wattage. And then you have the your regular citizens of the state that are plugging in there. Does the energy grid have to be hardened? Is there enough capacity? capacity to handle all the buses charging, all the citizens charging their electric vehicles?
1: You know, that's certainly a concern, but I don't think it's the biggest concern. I think that's something that we definitely need to take into consideration and accommodate that. Uh, I do envision as the electric vehicle fleet grows and becomes a larger proportion of the uh, the fleet, the public fleet, that will also have more solar power out there, and vehicles will be charged in their garage from solar power, or vehicles will be charged while you're in the office while they're parked under solar panels and those types of things. Um, and I think that that will be a predominance, and that shouldn't be a heavy burden, and it should be a relief on uh, the the electric grid, at least the growth of the electric grid but there's going to be other scenarios that pan out there's you know they're exploring ways to charge vehicles as they're driving down the road including buses and that certainly is new infrastructure and it certainly is going to be taxing on the uh, grid and you'll have to make sure that the grid is is capable of doing that and again the infrastructure that i think Local entities and states and others need to be thinking about is is those outside charging stations such that that electric vehicle is not limiting in you and in, in where you can travel if you're going beyond just your normal commute. Is there going to be the charging infrastructure? Is it going to be fast charging? Is it going to be convenient? Is it where you're going and and those types of things such that uh, it, it it's as simple as you know filling up your car with fuel and uh, that's where we need to. Get that network build out such that it's just a non-issue.
0: Infrastructure from the it seems to be the common denominator almost like the glue that holds it all together is that a fair statement
1: Yeah it certainly is an important one uh, and without the infrastructure there's going to be the hesitation to purchase electric vehicles you'll have that range and anxiety um, and you know you've, you complete that network and it really enables the electric vehicle um, and other uh, alternative vehicle, uh to really thrive because you won't have to have that concern or that
0: worry infrastructure enables the the vehicles to move enables the the moving of passengers and the moving of goods but then on the other piece of the pie is payments how do we get to a situation where let's say malcolm you you take the bus then you hop on a scooter and then you go into a a rideshare vehicle do we get to the point where that's ever one seamless payment so you don't think about it so this is the most optimal a friendly way for me to get to get where I'm going. Does that ever start to play into this planning process? Oh, absolutely. And I surely hope so. Uh, I've seen a lot of public agencies and entities
1: attempt to solve this problem uh, to varying levels of success. But I mean, I can go on almost any website and shop and use one payment system, whether it's PayPal or any of these other things that are out there. We need to get to that level when it comes to transportation. And they really, it falls into categories of mobility on demand or mobility as a service. When I need a different mode of mobility, it's gonna be a one payment uh, option and very, very convenient. I'm convinced that it'll be an app-based solution with some of the backroom financing and whether or not it's a credit card or, or some other thing such that I can I can take an Uber to the end of my transit line take my transit ride into the major metropolitan area, and then maybe use a scooter or bike share to go that last quarter mile to get to my office, and it's one payment, and it's seamless, and I don't have to get two different tickets. I don't have to pay one and pay another and then open up a third app to pay the, the last piece. That'll be very important in connecting the network. We talk about the transportation network and all the different modes being seamless, and, and that will be an important part of it. Um, and we've taken a couple of different runs at it, but I don't think we've mastered it. And I think it's gonna come down to that app on your phone as well as the, the 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 charging that you don't really see behind the scenes.
0: That's a really valid point because it give you a scenario and you get picked up at your home and you use multimodal transportation to get to LAX. You get to LAX and it's like, oh, I have to check it back. Well, I already did that. It's all one seamless integrated payment. You go right to check-in. You're happy because you're not waiting in a long line and most likely you're getting to that airport in the future in an electric vehicle. As Michael Baker designs and plans the future of an airport, what are you taking into with electric vehicles? Are you looking at, with a, and then an autonomous, are you looking at drop off and pickup lanes for here I am Malcolm and you you're, you have an expedited check-in because you've already done the seamless transaction? Are you taking all these mobility trends to eliminate passenger friction so when they go back to fly, they're gonna be stressed to capacity? And you try and make it from a design standpoint as simple and frictionless as possible. Sure,
1: uh, there's a lot of work that we do with different airports, and some of it's on the runway side, some of it's on the terminal side, and then some of it's out front, the ingress egress of passengers getting in and out of the airport, and that's very important. You've got the curb management, exactly what that curb space is going to be used for, to be as efficient and as effective to get people in and out. Um, and then you've got these, uh, you know, you've got the parking questions and those types of things. Um, And you have to take all that into consideration that comes in in the planning stage, as well as using technology almost to have a small mini traffic management center to manage the ingress and egress of uh, transportation into the airport. I'll give you uh, uh, one example. LAX in Los Angeles, a few years back, opened up what we call the U. Uh, to Uber and Lyft. And and LAX is a small city all on its own. <laughs> when they opened it up to Uber and Lyft, it added 15,000 car trips a day. And, and that was the last thing that they needed. Uh, it certainly was a convenience factor for the traveler because they now had that access and drop them off right at their terminal. Um, but it created a whole nother problem or actually in that case, exacerbated a problem. Uh, what it replaced was your friend or your relative Uh, or family member dropping you off at the curb. It didn't replace, and it didn't necessarily, it also detracted uh, uh, actually from the shuttles. So you took 15 people out of a van and you put them into 15 different Uber and Lyft uh, cars, and that was a problem. Then they tried to solve that by taking all the Uber and the Lyft and the taxis and putting them in an offsite destination. Then you actually created very short-term another problem because you're waiting for an individual ride. So you had this chaos of calling an Uber driver and you're matching up 1,000 people with 1,000 different cars. And then they solve that with technology so that the next person got the next Uber and Lyft. So all these things have to be worked out um, you know, in great detail for them to be effective. But you really come back to prioritizing moving people in large groups away, whether or not it's shuttles, people movers, uh, transit. I have a great appreciation when I travel to different airports that are connected by rail. When I fly into Washington, D.C., I take the metro downtown. I don't take a taxi or I don't rent a car because it's not the most efficient way to get to downtown. Even Salt Lake City's airport is connected to downtown by a rail. And the example I used before, LAX is not yet but they've got big plans to do so so it's really about moving as many people as you possibly can to destinations without single occupancy vehicles because there's not room for those
0: chicago o'hare has a, has a great train to get you to downtown chicago and it's just so efficient you see all the people sitting in traffic and you can just wave as, right. as you as you scoot along When you look at the the airports of the future and Uber and Lyft and ride sharing and eventually autonomous ride sharing is not going anywhere, could you envision a future where you design an airport where you have dedicated lanes for the autonomous vehicles or the Ubers and Lyft that are completely removed from the rest of the pedestrian traffic in your design work so they can just slide right in since you know that that's a really fast transaction. You get out of the vehicle, they get in. Is that design planning going into it yet? Oh, absolutely.
1: And mostly on the planning side. I don't think that there's an actual design to be able to do it. But the planning, the long range planning for the airports is really where that comes down. And if you've got transit in the form of rail, it should be really convenient um, for passengers to come off and and get to their destination. It's a large movement of, of uh, uh, passengers in a very efficient manner. Then you've got the shuttles, whether or not it's public transportation going to different communities or destinations or downtown, or whether they're going to hotels or those types of things. Again, you're moving large numbers of people very efficiently. Then you've got the rideshare, which can be a very efficient movement of people in and out, in and out. It doesn't require you to go get a rental car and then take your rental car to downtown, and then it requires parking so that you know if you prioritize these different means of moving passengers in and out and you anticipate the volume and that's a very easy thing to anticipate you can really start to make that uh, out front of the airport airport very efficient to move people in and out and i think that's where the engineering and the planning and the experience comes in
0: and and another example of moving people in and out especially set times or, or sporting events or concert venues And like if you look at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, the subway is phenomenal. It drops you right off across the street and you walk in and then you pile back with everybody else. When Michael Baker is planning sports stadiums, do you look into incorporating multimodal transportation such as as rail and with the Uber and Lyft again? Is that all that planning going into figuring out how do we get this amount of people, say 30,000 people in at one time and 30,000 people in at one time so they're not stressed to capacity and the traffic is properly functioning?
1: surely i think there's a lot more thought going into it and michael baker international is certainly helping people plan for this as far as the connectivity of these sports stadiums these big venues in general uh, by transit and nowadays we have to take into consideration the transportation network companies and uber and lyft and people getting in and again these things can be really good they can offset some of the parking that's required what i think is more important and we would want to help folks figure out is the location you pick for those venues. You talked about Yankee Stadium and I've been there and I've taken the L. I would never have thought of taking a car to go to Yankee Stadium. Sac- nope. <laughs> yeah, you just wouldn't think that way, right? Uh the in Sacramento, they moved their basketball stadium from a uh, a, a location on the perimeter of the city with a lot of parking right downtown. And now when I worked in Sacramento, if I were going to a game, I'd have dinner and I'd walk to the stadium, and then I would determine how to get home after that. Usually a reverse co- commute for me, but it would be after the game. Down in San Diego, the Padres Stadium is right downtown. There's a lot that can be planned in the in the location that can really uh, change the dynamic as to how people get in and out of those stadiums and what kind of travel is required. And then therefore you don't need 30 or 40 or 50,000 parking spots to go along with that. You, you're certainly going to need parking in a certain amount of your audience. is going to get to the event that way. But I think that's the bigger planning opportunity. Now there's certainly the ingress and egress of now that you've got a location, now that you're, you know, developing, um, the access to transit and those types of things and then and then just have that uh, that smooth movement of people in and out uh, and and the planning of the actual ingress egress when that comes up but I think the first thing that needs to be done is really thoughtful location and it can actually reduce trips and reduced miles traveled for people uh, going to those big venues
0: you're hundred percent correct and the old the old saying goes location location location. I've been to the old Sleep Train Arena out by the airport in Sacramento and the new one downtown, and I've also been to Petco Park in San Diego. And to me, as I think, the economic impact in those local businesses when you have it in a dense urban, everybody's walking. Or Wrigley Field when you have Wrigleyville, and they they shut it down. People are part of that community, and they're spending money in those uh, bars and in those restaurants and having a really good positive impact on that community where the stadium is is that a trend that you see and i believe uh, i'll go out on a limb as they really started with camden yards in baltimore they really started that trend do you see the trend of putting stadiums in dense urban environments continuing to accelerate as you start to look towards 2030 2040
1: i do and i certainly hope that it continues that way because i do think not only does it help the transportation challenge that we were all talking about. But it really, I think it is an enhancement to the community and the city. Uh, In the Sacramento example, not only am I completing my work, I'm then socializing and patroning, you know, uh, local businesses and having dinner before I go to the basketball game. And I'm walking and then I'm walking back. Uh, It's also accessible by transit because most cities are served, you know, radially by transit into downtown. So then when you put your stadium downtown, by default, it's served by, uh, transit. So uh, I, I do see that trend continuing and I hope that it uh, continues well into the future because I think there's a lot of benefits, not only from the transportation side of things, but the uh, the community as well.
0: You're right about the community. Then I would also go out and say it's a healthier lifestyle. If you're encouraging individuals to walk There's a lot of really good benefits. And I've certainly learned a, a, a lot during this podcast. And I, I thank you for your time. And as we look to wrap up this wonderful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them about planning in the future of mobility? Because it seems that all the little p- bits of our conversation from charging infrastructure to infrastructure in general, to payment, it seems like you're working to enable a seamless consumer experience.
1: Yeah, I think the most important thing to pass on and to reiterate and punctuate is when we're solving the transportation needs of our cities, our you know, rural communities, uh, suburban communities, we're getting people and goods from point A to point B. Uh, we're increasing access for individuals and mobility for individuals and goods. In doing that, we don't want to harm the community and detriment one community to the benefit of throughput for another community. There's a way we can enhance the transportation system for people in those communities and also benefit those communities as opposed to you know, get unintended consequences that are to the detriment of those communities. We can efficiently move people and goods certain distances, long distances, commute distances, but we can also enhance communities such that people are using, uh, you know, active transportation, uh, walking and biking and those other things, and and not in negatively impacting uh, individual communities when we're enhancing the transportation system. So I always used to say, look, if we're if we're doing a transportation system that or improvement that improves mobility, but it's a detriment to that local community, let's stop and step back and evaluate what we're doing and really take that into consideration because it's the people that we're trying to provide enhanced transportation and access to that we don't want to harm as far as a community and let's not let's not lose sight of that. Malcolm, thank you so much for
0: for sharing your insights, your positivity your honesty. And as we've clearly heard on this conversation, multimodal transportation has a positive impact on society and infrastructure is the backbone of transportation. So Malcolm, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to join us today.
1: Thank you, Grayson. Enjoyed it immensely.
0: Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback. We love comments and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEintl on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.